You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Molly, have you ever been camping? Yes, I love camping. Sleeping under the stars, cooking by campfire, paring life down to the bare essentials with a few concessions. Welcome to REI. Are you finding everything you need? Where are your travel espresso makers? They're just two aisles over. I'll show you. I know what you mean. My concession when I go camping, I check into the Four Seasons Hotel, and then I turn off the central air so I can really rough it. It's just like the great age of exploration. Right. But 100 years ago, this was before travel espresso makers and hotel Wi-Fi, so things were really pared down. Wow. Explorers set off with just the basics, a sled, a tent, food, some navigation equipment, good pair of shoes, and a mission to go into the unknown to see what was there. Although sometimes there was the added motivation of profit and personal publicity. Well, some things haven't changed. But it is true. These adventurers often risk their lives in their endeavor. And as a result, whole areas of the world, once blank spots on the map, have opened up to us. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is going into the unknown. We'll hear stories of the past, but also ask what's left to explore. What makes an explorer? Well, for writer Mark Adams, years of editing adventure and travel magazines provided his bona fides, he felt, to embark on a trek through the jungles of Peru. Okay, Mark had never actually slept in a tent or even pitched one, but he had corrected the grammar and rearranged the sentence structure of travel writers who had. Plus, he'd begun research on his book, Turn Right at Machu Picchu, Rediscovering the Lost City One Step at a Time. Machu Picchu, the ancient Inca city in Peru. When American historian Hiram Bingham set out in search of the legendary city where the Incas had retreated when they were being overwhelmed by the Spanish invaders, he discovered another one, a largely forgotten complex of buildings on a hill, Machu Picchu. Of course, for Bingham to have claimed he discovered it came as a surprise to the native Peruvians. But in 1911, he did bring Machu Picchu to the attention of the world. And Hiram Bingham was genuinely moved by the beauty of what he had found. And that brings us back to Mark Adams. Who decided to retrace the path of Bingham's celebrated expedition. At the time, not a lot of people were particularly interested in pre-Columbian ruins. It was right at the moment when interest was just starting to build in places like Central America. So what Bingham did was he got down there and he was essentially working on a detective story. He was looking for this lost city. And what happened instead is he almost stumbled upon Machu Picchu. Almost stumbled. Did, 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 he, did he not stumble upon it? Well, it wasn't his main objective. Well, his main objective was to become famous. He came from a, a very well-known family in Hawaii. His grandfather, Hiram 
Hiram Bingham I was one of the first missionaries in Hawaii, founded the Panaho School, famous now for having graduated President Barack Obama. So he knew from an early age he wanted to be famous. So he sort of set up shop as an explorer, decided he was going to find this lost city of the Incas. But when he got to Cusco in 1911, found all sorts of clues that there might also be an interesting set of ruins up on this high mountain ridge above the Urubamba River. Now, you've reprised Bingham's expedition. I mean, you hired a guide in Peru, a couple of mule drivers, some mules, and uh, you walked uh, the so-called Inca Trail along with a lot of other trails. Why were you doing it? What was your goal? Was it to become famous as well? Well, not so much. I was working as an editor at National Geographic Adventure magazine and, you know, sending writers off to Kilimanjaro and Kathmandu and various other exciting places around the globe. And I realized I had never actually done anything adventurous. The last time I had slept in a tent when I was eight years old and my father brought a fake teepee home from Sears Roebuck. So I, I realized that there was probably an interesting story here. And instead of sending someone in my place, as I normally would, I decided to tackle this one myself. Well, what was that like? After all, you spent weeks hiking in tough terrain. Can you give me an example of the kind of experience you had? I mean, what it was like every day? Is you know, I was, I was in so far over my head, literally from the first day. We crossed a canyon to get to these ruins that are called Chokekirao, which is known as Machu Picchu's sister site because it looks so much like Machu Picchu. But hardly anyone ever goes there. And I quickly realized hardly anyone ever goes there because you have to cross a mile-deep canyon with a near vertical drop down and up on the other side. It's the only way to get there. You know, I haven't climbed anything like that probably ever. Was it a tropical jungle? Was it a barren mountains? Or was it all of the above? Well, that's one of the amazing things about Peru is in a an area not much larger than, say, metro Los Angeles, you've got 20,000-foot snow-capped mountains, you've got Amazon jungle, you've got raging whitewater rivers, you've got glaciers, you've got, you know, high, dry, almost desert scrub. So all of this stuff is packed into this, this relatively small area, which is what makes it such a fascinating place. Let's talk a bit about the Incas themselves. They were surely the greatest of the South American civilizations, at least as far as we know. Pretty impressive where they chose to build that society. What can you say about their engineering, technological, or even organizational accomplishments? Well, the Incas are generally considered to be geniuses of engineering and of organization. The Inca Trail that they built in the 15th century, much of it still stands, even though people have been pounding it with horseshoes and, and mules' feet for over 500 years. You know, some of the buildings at Machu Picchu were constructed on not one but two fault lines in a very rainy area, and they still look essentially as they did 500, 600 years ago. Um, what's even more impressive was their organizational skills. When Pizarro and his men arrived in 1532, they couldn't believe that the Incas had these storehouses filled with food and clothing that could last for years and years. How big was the uh, Inca Empire, and how long did it last? The Inca Empire is odd because it was so big. It was the biggest empire ever in the Western Hemisphere, as far as we know, and because it was so short-lived. It started in 1438 as sort of a small tribe near Cusco, and within 100 years had expanded to most of the west coast of South America. But what happened is in, in a period of maybe five years, from 1527 to 1532, the entire empire was ravaged by a plague, probably smallpox. They were hit by a civil war between two brothers who wanted to take over from their father who died of this plague. So when Pizarro showed up and fired his cannon off in the square of Cajamarca, the Incas dropped their ruler, a, a fellow named Atahualpa, 
and he was a god. He was the son of the sun, and the sun was the highest deity in the Inca Empire. So the Spaniards walk into Cajamarca. They defeat the Incas. Uh, they capture the head Inca. What'd they do with him? Well, they put him in a room under house arrest, basically, and Atahualpa, being a very cagey man, makes Pizarro an offer. He says, look, I will fill this room to a level about eight and a half feet high, once with gold and twice with silver, if you will release me. And Pizarro said, oh, okay, do it. And essentially the entire empire was mobilized to fill this room with gold and silver, uh, which they did in less than a year. And when that happened, Pizarro said, okay, thanks, and killed Atahualpa in the town square of Cajamarca. And the Incas did, did not really develop a strategy to fight back until it was almost too late. And part of that strategy was retreating back into the Andes and possibly to places like Machu Picchu. Exactly. You know, Machu Picchu is interesting because it's right at the point where the Andes hit the Amazon basin. So it's not only an interesting area topographically, it was also a highly sacred area for the Incas because they were pantheists. Well, the big question about Machu Picchu is, what was it really? I mean, was, right. it, was, it, was it just a winter resort for royalty, a religious site? Do we know? Will we ever know? Right. Well, there's three versions of that. There's Bingham's version, which is that it was the lost city of the Incas and also the birthplace of the Incas, both of which have been disproven since. There's the sort of generally accepted expert theory, which is that it was a country estate built for the first great Inca, a man named Pachacutec, probably around 1450 or 1460, and that's probably true. But there's also a theory that it was constructed where it was because Machu Picchu is sort of a sacred center. If you look to the north, south, east, and west of Machu Picchu, there are sacred peaks, or apus as they're known in Quechua, the local language, you know, exactly north, south, east, and west. There's a sacred river that winds its way almost completely around the peak the sort of rock massif on which Machu Picchu was constructed, almost like a python coiling itself around. And then, of course, it's right where the Andes become the Amazon. So this, you know, if there were a Geiger counter for sacred territory in the Andes, the needle would be buried on the spot where Machu Picchu was built. Mark, if you had to sort of uh, itemize the great accomplishments of this empire, which, after all, lasted less than a century, Mm -hmm. uh, what would you put on the list? Wow. I would put organizational skill first and foremost. There is actually a team at Harvard that is trying to decipher these things that are known as kipus, which are knotted cords that the Incas used as mnemonic devices to remember things. For years and years, people have thought these were just like abacuses. But the more we learn, the more we're finding out that these were incredibly sophisticated organizational tools, probably more in common to a barcode than to an abacus. Above and beyond that, the Incas were probably the first empire to eradicate hunger because they were so well organized. And their architecture is so well suited to the region. Those buildings at Machu Picchu, those main ones that are famous because they're built without mortar and you can't shove a credit card between two of them because they're sort of packed together like Legos, you know, those have withstood earthquakes for 500 years while both the capital city of Lima and the the local capital of Cusco have been leveled by earthquakes. Mark, 1911, 100 years ago when Bingham discovered, although that uh, word should be put in quotes because right. after all there were people living up A very touchy Washington. word in, in Peru. Uh, apparently. Well, there was a kind of sudden rush to explore the still unknown parts of the world, but what was fueling it? Were, were they just worried that, uh, you know, 10 years later you'd have airplanes, motorized uh, ground transport or something that would make it so trivial it wouldn't be interesting? I mean, why were they doing all this? I think it was a, just a heightened sense that 
you know, the blank spots in the map were being filled in. And ambitious young men wanted to be the ones who filled in those last spots on the map. Mark Adams, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Seth. There's only one thing that's left to say. Turn right at Machu Picchu. The title of journalist Mark Adams' book, Rediscovering the Lost City, One Step at a Time. From Peru, we travel farther south. In fact, as far south as you can go. Today, there's a gift shop at McMurdo Station. McMurdo is the American base for scientific research in Antarctica. Which is unremarkable, right? Because almost any destination these days is marked with tourism. A glaciologist went to Antarctica to collect ice cores, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. But it wasn't always the case. We begin with McMurdo because it's the departure point for traveling to the South Pole, a trek of 950 miles. The South Pole. Prior to the mid-1950s, there were no permanent structures, nothing but a vast, unbroken field of ice and snow. Today, there are research buildings housing even a runway. To travel to the pole still requires endurance. The record high temperature there is 7 degrees Fahrenheit, after all. But it is not the grueling journey it once was. The Amundsen-Scott South Pole Research Center honors two men, Roald Amundsen and Robert F. Scott, both who knew something about grueling. Scott, a Royal Navy officer, and the Norwegian explorer Amundsen were leaders of the first expeditions to reach the South Pole. And if there was nothing but snow and ice at the Pole in 1950, imagine traveling there in 1912, before any motorized transport was used. Amundsen, Scott, along with the irrepressible Ernest Shackleton, were among those who gave the heroic age of Antarctic exploration its name. Journalist Edward Larson tells their story in his book, Empire of Ice. It was the middle of winter. It was sun didn't rise, dead darkness. They were about 500 miles apart on the shore, as it were, of the Ross Sea. And they were preparing to head to the South Pole once their spring came, which would have been October. Amundsen was focused entirely on getting to the pole. He had nine men, and they were all focused on getting south. Scott ran a very, very different enterprise. He had people all over. He had groups out, camped out at different places, conducting scientific research in biology, geology, glaciology. His was a much broader, complex scientific enterprise. But he himself, with a small group, was preparing to leave in the spring for the pole. Okay, so it was a de facto competition It was a race, but nobody really set up this race, did they? It wasn't intended as a race on the part of the British. The Scott expedition was the third of three, actually there is even a fourth, British expedition, which were sent south with support from the government to conduct scientific research and, as it were, on the side, go to the pole. What intervened, what made it a race, was that Amundsen and the Norwegians, who had originally been planning to go to the North Pole, abruptly and without informing anyone, turned south because Perry had made it, the American had allegedly made it to the North Pole and they didn't, Amundsen didn't want to be second there. He turned his expedition on a dime south and so when word got out that he was also heading to the South Pole the same year, it became a race, at least in the eyes of the media and in the eyes of the world. And of course, it was a race on Amundsen's part. He wanted to get there first. And what happened? What happened was that Amundsen was prepared for a race. He was an intrepid explorer. He was an expert at 
cross-country skier, and he was also an expert at mushing dogs. He had already, in the decade before, made the first ever, it seems impossible now, but the first ever crossing of the Northwest Passage above Canada. And on that trip, which took him two winters and three years, he would spend the winters at his boat, and he learned how to mush dogs and proper clothing for the Arctic weather from the Inuit Eskimos, and he took that equipment south. And he was ready for a dash to the pole. In, in contrast, Scott was, didn't know much about dogs at all, had some along, but never was comfortable. To the British, dogs were pets, not draft animals. And so uh, the British mostly manhauled and thought that was the proper way to go. So they were planning a much slower trek south with multiple stages, with groups leaving depots. It was a very planned slow trip, but they thought a safer trip. So Scott, once he heard that Amundsen was there too, he knew that he could never actually go faster than Amundsen. So the only way he was going to get to the pole first was if Amundsen failed. But Amundsen did not fail. Oh, Amundsen got there first. He he had a miraculous planning. I mean, he planned a beautiful trip. He went south, leaving with a party of five, uh, leaving depots behind as they went, with dogs pulling. The men that weren't riding on the sleds uh, were were cross-country skiing. They had perfect conditions. On their way back, they hit every supply depot right on time. They had too much food. They left food behind. The dogs were bursting with health. One of the amazing things, the trip took 99 days out and back, and Amundsen gained weight on the trip. But Scott eventually did get to the pole. Yes. Scott got to the pole about five weeks after Amundsen. He had left somewhat later, and of course, he had a much more cumbersome entourage he was traveling with. At first, he was traveling with tractors and horses, pulling uh, big sleds and some dogs, and they went along the Ross ice shelf, leaving depots. And then he manhauled with two other parties up the glacier, and then one by one, they turned down, and then he was left with four other men, there were five total, to go down to the to pole and back, and they made it there five weeks, as I said. They made it there in January of 1912. So when these expeditions actually reached the pole, what is it that they saw? What is it that they experienced? That was a dramatic moment for both groups. Now, you don't really see anything. It's just an endless field of ice, ice a mile thick. Amundsen reached the place. Of course, he was triumphant. Now, he was a very mythological man. He was a pure Scandinavian, and he thought he had the place. He sent his team to make precise observations to make sure they were there, and they figured out that they were six miles off the center, and then they went those six miles, and then, as good Scandinavians, they celebrated by smoking cigars. Now, they headed back. Scott comes five weeks later. About 20 miles from the pole, he sees debris left by the Norwegians that they've been walking around and plotting and trying to find if they'd been on the pole. The Norwegians had been so careful about trying to mark, walk off of the whole area. The Norwegians had left a tent there. They had an extra tent. They left a tent with a note for Scott, a little banner saying, welcome to 90 degrees south, sort of to rub it in, and a a message to take back to the Norwegian king to confirm that both men had gotten to the place. So they didn't have to do much exploring. Scott's first words were, God, what a place. He expressed his disappointment at failing to get there first. Wilson, Bill Wilson, the scientist aboard, said he was disappointed. He wrote in his notes that he was somewhat disappointed not to get there first, but he was proud that they'd done it right, that they'd done it as a proper scientific expedition, and he thought theirs had more meaning for that reason. Hold on, and we'll return to Seth's conversation with Edward Larson about the heroic age of Antarctic exploration in a moment. 
We're into the unknown on Big Picture Science. We now return to Seth's conversation with Edward Larson about the great age of Antarctic exploration. At this point in the story, Scott and Amundsen have reached the South Pole. Now it's time to return. The trip back was extremely difficult. First, because it was much later in the season, it turned very cold. Also, the supplies, the depots, um, they had enough food, except that it was so much colder they needed higher calories, and their fuel oil, which was in canisters, leaked. So they didn't have enough fuel on the way back. And problems just mounted on problems. Of course, they were pulling their own sleds. It turned, as I said, extremely cold, much colder than Scott should have expected, much colder than normal. Also on the way back, of course, theirs was a scientific enterprise, and one of the party was the chief scientist, Edward Wilson, known as Bill, actually, Bill Wilson, spotted some very important uh, fossils. So they stopped and collected fossils, and there were some accidents. Um, One of the uh, members, Edgar Evans, had severely injured his hand. Another one, Titus Oates, had tremendous problems with frostbite. And one by one, two of the men died on the way down Beardmore Glacier and across the ice shelf. And then just 10 miles short of their main depot, so-called one-ton depot with, uh, with a ton of supplies, they were caught in a blizzard, the three remaining men. They had dragged their sled with the rock specimens all that way. And there they were trapped in the blizzard, which continued according to Scott's record because he was writing this whole time for eight days. It's there they were found a year later after winter was over by the search party with Scott in the middle and the other two men lying beside them with their collected geological uh, specimens, uh, with their notes. Scott had his journal that he'd been writing for publication right to the end. He was holding it. It was frozen in his arm. They had to break his arm to get the journal out. And it was there that they were covered with snow and buried. You mentioned the 35 pounds of rocks that these guys brought back from the Beardmore Glacier, which was, you know, roughly halfway to the pole. 35 pounds of rocks, and they die on the way back. Was that a useless thing to do to bring those rocks back? Was Scott just trying to make points? Scott wanted to get to the pole. He wanted to get there first. But the official justification for the first expedition and the ongoing justification in the British mind was doing good science. You have to sort of think of these people, it was like a Cambridge or Oxford student who who wants to get first honors in chemistry and win a cricket match on the side. And the poll was always build it that way. Sure, the public was interested in the poll, but the government and the official explanation was scientific research. Amundsen, he did none of this. He, he didn't do any science, right? He was only in it for the glory? Amundsen was in it for the human adventure and the accomplishment. He did not take scientists along on this trip. He did not conduct scientific research. His was a, was a dash to the pole and a dash back. That in itself is an enormous achievement. This is called the heroic age of, of Antarctic exploration, and indeed the heroic age of exploration in general. What, why heroic? Just because people died? People always died during exploration uh, missions. Well, people didn't die with Shackleton, and they didn't die with Amundsen. Um, they did die with Scott. It was heroic, and it didn't include those. There were other expeditions as well. Mawson led one for the Australians. It was heroic because these people were larger than life. Amundsen reaching the South Pole was named the number two news story of the year, and the only reason it was number two was because the Titanic sunk that year, which made number one. These were followed, and so it's called the heroic age of exploration because the men were larger than life. They were heroes, and I say men because even though women applied, they didn't take them along. Ed, you write about Scott, of course, but also Ernest Shackleton, a guy who's almost as well known as Scott, maybe more so. He tried to get to the South Pole a few years before Scott, 
But he quit. He quit within 97 miles of the pole. Why was that? Shackleton was an amazing man, larger-than-life character. He had been on Scott's first expedition south. He had traveled with Scott on their effort to reach the South Pole, that which fell way short. And then he went back to try on his own with an expedition that was privately funded, took on teams of scientists. Shackleton was always about first and foremost, and when he went back, he wanted to beat Scott in every respect, and one respect was doing better science. He took along better scientists, including a member of the Royal Society, one of the leading geologists in the world who went all the way to the magnetic South Pole, which at that time was a scientific mecca, a scientific holy grail that was being sought because that held keys to understanding terrestrial magnetism throughout the Southern Hemisphere. But he went south with a small group. They were traveling with ponies and man hauling, and they simply, they got so close but they didn't quite make it. They were 100 miles short. They had to turn back. They knew how much food they had, and they knew there was no way to get back safely. One thing you can say about Shackleton that you can't say about Scott is that he always returned with all of his men. Shackleton's men loved him. Scott's men respected Scott, but Shackleton's men not only respected but loved him. Edward Larson, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on the show. An Empire of Ice, Scott Shackleton and the Heroic Age of Antarctic Science is the journalistic feat of Edward Larson. You know, it's really an incredible story, Seth, because I can't think of any trip that I've taken, and I love to travel, where I didn't have a map or a timetable or some assurance that I would get to my destination. Well, Molly, that is the nature of exploration, of course. But, you know, part of what made Scott so famous, what made this so heroic, was that he and four of his companions died on the way back. So maybe we wouldn't be telling the story the way that we are had he survived. There are far fewer books about Amundsen than there are about Scott. One other thing. Do you remember earlier we mentioned the McMurdo gift store, Seth? Yeah. Well, my father, who has done research in the Antarctic, said he was surprised to go there and see as a memento of the South Pole a snow globe with polar bears on ice. (laughs) Polar bears. Well, maybe they had a surplus in the North Pole (laughs) souvenir shop. Yeah, so it's refreshing. So the marketing of the South Pole has a little ways to go. (laughs) Would you like a manicure? Uh, Yes, I would. Thank you. How short would you like your nails? Really, really short. Okay, have a seat. You'll need more than a manicure to prepare for a trip to Mars. We've learned that some astronauts actually have their fingernails removed in advance of space travel. They're in spacesuits, doing EVA. They know they're going to get really banged up and and bruised, and those fingernails are going to hurt. So a few astronauts have removed their fingernails as a preventative measure. Dava Newman has made space her place as professor of aeronautics, astronautics, and engineering systems at MIT. She helps prepare astronauts for going into space. Arguably the next great destination for exploration. But to get there, you need to be in great physical shape, have to boast of a degree in engineering, science, or mathematics, and have many hours of related experience. Oh, and a great suit. Dava Newman is designing the next generation of spacesuit for the next generation of explorers. Molly met with her at her office at MIT. So the great thing is, in low gravity on the moon or Mars, humans can be kind of superhuman. It's fantastic because you're kind of bound and maybe, you know, jump 
maybe not tall buildings, but at least tall rocks. So it'll help us get our work done. So you saw the Apollo astronauts, and that was really the light gravity. So they could bound, which was great. But they were using a lot of extra energy, basically wasting energy. They have to waste energy to overcome the suit. So I want the future astronauts to put all of their energy into going about their business, you know, with their explorers. So we want 100% of their energy to go into exploring, not to fight the suit. So that's really the justification and the reason to change from a gas pressurized shell spacesuit like we had in Apollo and even what currently fly on International Space Station and Shuttle to the future. So the future is a biosuit is basically a second skin. We still have to pressurize the astronaut. So our design then shrink wraps the astronaut. Essentially, it applies one third of an atmosphere. That's enough to keep you alive in the vacuum. And, you know, I want the suit to move with the person. So it is like a pair of clothing compared to a big bulky spacesuit. So it's a physically demanding job. I just want to talk about that for just a moment. Then let's talk about the suit. But, you know, the image that we have of the astronauts moving on the moon, it seems very easy, but it's not. There's a lot of physical energy that goes into being in outer space. Oh, it's it's huge when you're especially when you're in EVA, extravehicular activity. When you are in a space suit and you're outside the craft, you know, on on station or on the moon, they're working like crazy. And remember they're there for a long time. They're trying to get as much science done as possible. So they're really exerting themselves. We measure that. That's called the energetics or the metabolic workload. So we have all the data from Apollo how hard those astronauts were working. They're working hard cuz they're trying to get their job done. So again, fast forward to Mars, we want to make sure they're still going to be working hard. They're going to be probably in a rover, then they'll climb out to their suits. So really, if there's something really interesting to do, again, they're looking for the past evidence of life, and we just want them to be very comfortable. So it is kind of akin to uh, extreme athletics in my mind. You know, an extreme explorer is what Mars is all about. Could you describe the two different suits if had them side by side? Give us a uh, give us a picture of what the suits look like. The traditional suit that we're used to seeing with the great big fishbowl helmet, and then the bio suit. So the the current suit, we call that the extravehicular mobility unit, uh, EMU, sorry, NASA uses lots of acronyms. So the current suit, the EMU, is a big pressurized, it's about 140 kilos. That's close to 300 pounds. This is, it doesn't matter in the weightless environment of space station, but this is a big, massive, looks like the Michelin Man. This is a big, gas pressurized white suit. The white is for thermal control, actually, so that's why it's white. The bio suit, it looks very different. It's a skin tight suit, so um, you can tell a male from a female. You can, it's, it's really applying the pressure directly to the skin. It's a custom fit suit. So we do a laser scan. We know your dimensions. You know, each person gets their own suit. Now, what we focus on in our invention and the patents really for the design of the pressure layer. It's the patterning as well as the materials. That's really our invention. Is it true that you were inspired by Olympic athletes, by Olympic swimmers and the full body suits that they wear for maximum efficiency in the water. So I'm always inspired by Olympic athletes as I was an athlete, <laughs> formerly myself. Turns out, probably been working on this idea before the skin suits came up for the Olympic swimmers. So that's really for aerodynamics. Definitely inspired by giraffes, the design of giraffes for some of our work, for our biosuit work. Then again, tight, tight fitting, you know, athletic suits, swimming or even running. Those, though, are mostly for aerodynamic drag. Ours is actually for pressure production. You said giraffes. Giraffes is <laughs> in the animal. You, I can't just let that go. What do you mean? <laughs> giraffes and snakes. So, <laughs> Which, um, so giraffes. The reason I'm fascinated with giraffes, and when we put in the early biosuit proposals to the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, I actually did write. I need to study giraffes because I really wanted to understand their neck musculature. Why? Here's a fascinating question to me. Scientific question. 
so here's a five meter animal and it's down, its head's down on the ground eating shrubs. And then it lifts its head up a good four meters for an adult male. What isn't it faint? You and I jump out of bed in the morning, a half a meter, and we almost faint. So, you know, what's happening? So there's only a few papers ever published on giraffe musculoskeletal system as well as the cardiovascular. Well, we think what's going on is that giraffes have their own built-in G-suit. That's how I would describe it. What does that mean? Well, they have really big neck muscles. They really compress them almost instantaneously when they're raising their heads. And they do get that, the blood from their heart, you know, thoracic region, right up to that right up to their head. So even though it's over a column of four meters, that's, that's a big distance, right? So, you know, 12 to 15 feet, you're looking at that, that blood and they don't faint. So that's really interesting how physiologically have giraffes adapted. Now, how does that <laughs> relate to my spacesuit design? Okay, so, so the, the question of the, the pressurization. Um, now, one of the things that these new suits will do is they will squeeze the body right. gently. Is, is that the connection between the spacesuit design and what the giraffe is doing in its neck? A little bit. And so it turns out that the giraffe design is probably ideal for fighter pilots or a G-suit, what we call that, a G-suit, because if you're going through high and low Gs, the high Gs will take the blood out of your brain you know, down and you want to push it back up. So you kind of need instantaneously a large pressure and get that blood flowing back to your brain for animals or pilots. And the G is gravity. The oh, G yes. stands for gravity. Sorry, yes. Yeah. So G suit is a, is, a, is a gravity suit. Now for astronauts, you want to apply pressure. We actually don't need to apply. It's a low pressure suit. So it's only a third of an atmosphere. You and I are having this discussion in one atmosphere. You don't think about it because we have our wonderful life support system just here for us on Earth. But when you go in the vacuum of space, then we really have to keep people alive because we won't have this wonderful life support system that you and I are sitting in. So we can keep someone alive in just one third of an atmosphere. Why is it important to have pressure over the whole body? And and maybe that question could also be phrased as what happens to a body in a vacuum where there is no pressure? Right. So the body doesn't respond well to vacuum. And it's not like in the movies, the fictitious or even the sci-fi movies, you're not going to explode and things like that. But it wouldn't be comfortable. And in a true vacuum, a human would only have 30 seconds to a minute or two to live. You really kind of asphyxiate and your, your blood would essentially boil. And so if those inert gases they go through your bloodstream, that's not a good thing because you don't want bubbles <laughs> going through your bloodstream. Finally, when might we see these biosuits in action? Because if you're pinning them to our future Mars mission, it's not even certain that we will go to Mars one day. I know there are different camps for this. So will we go to Mars one day? Two-part question. And is that when we will see these biosuits in action? Right. So we're already on Mars. That's really important to remember. We have rovers and landers we're just not there with humans so you got me on a technicality there but these but these suits (laughs) these suits are not for the rovers these suits are not for the rovers that's right so yes we need humans on on mars i'm a big believer so nasa's plans right now do look forward to perhaps the 2030 time frame we'll be ready i hope we will see biosuits on mars if we have anything to say about it thank you very much for talking to us molly thank you so much it's my pleasure David Newman is Professor of Aeronautics, Astronautics, and Engineering Systems at MIT. Coming up, can you fathom a trip to the bottom of the ocean? Destinations of the future, and one of them might surprise you because it requires no travel at all. Into the Unknown on Big Picture Science. Your ears are tuned to Big Picture Science, and as we explore the nature of exploration, the destination that some insist represents the greatest unmapped frontier, well, it just may blow your mind. 
the brain. I know you say that's not a place. It doesn't count as a destination for exploration. You don't even need a passport. Some people, okay, neuroscientists mainly, would disagree. The brain is a place. Firstly, well, it's a place. It's a two-fisted ball of stuff that fills our cranium. Secondly, all space that we experience is a product of our brains. It creates our world. Our inner space is our outer space. Whoa, that's deep. You mind <laughs> if I sit cross-legged on this pillow and find my center? Go right ahead, Seth. The brain, however, is a black box. Only very recently have we begun to use tools to try to chart this unmapped territory. But neuroscientist David Eagleman says that what we might find there will open our world like nothing before. The brain is made of hundreds of billions of cells called neurons. Each neuron is about as complicated as a city. Each one of these neurons is connected to each other in such a staggering complexity that it bankrupts our language. And, you know, if you were to take a cubic centimeter of neural tissue, you have as many connections in there as you have stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So essentially, it's this enormous inner cosmos that is to be explored. And the excitement about the inner cosmos is that it is the seat of all of our hopes and dreams and aspirations, our loves, our fears, everything that makes you who you are. It's all somehow tied into this three pounds of pink squishy stuff in your skull. You know, you've called it the coolest thing in the world to study the brain. And judging by your comments there, I, I guess that's the way you feel about it. Well, that's right. Here's how I think about the brain when I look at it. It's sort of like an alien computational fabric that is unlike anything we've ever built. And it would be as though we you know, stumbled on some alien crash site and found this stuff inside that does massive operations in a way that we haven't even dreamt of yet. Isn't the problem with brains that, in a sense, we can't go there? I mean, you can, you know, open up some guy's skull and there's the brain, but maybe you can look at it with some devices. But to me, it's sort of like trying to understand a computer by, you know, taking a picture of its insides and you see all these little black things there. But, you know, that doesn't really tell you how it works. Can, can we really get in there? Yeah. And in fact, our technologies now have been accelerating the pace of getting in there. But the truth is that we have been getting in there for hundreds of years. And in part, this is because of Mother Nature's experiments. So when people get brain damage, either because of stroke or tumor or traumatic brain injury or 20 other things, people present with very specific sort of deficits. For example, they can no longer see color or understand music or name animals or they start cussing more or whatever it is. And so, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been noting these things in the literature and saying, gosh, you know, whenever this part of the brain tissue gets knocked out, there are very specific things that happen. It's not equivalent to saying that that part of the brain tissue equals color perception or something, but it is to say that the integrity of that piece of tissue is necessary. So with enough data points like that, we already have at least a crude picture of how many things in the brain are organized and arranged. And now we have technologies both at the very small end where we can record from single cells as they're active all the way up to something like neuroimaging where we can measure the activity in big chunks of cells. You know, if you're at a cocktail party and you tell people what you do and they say, well, gosh, you know, have we learned anything about the brains? What would you tell them are among the most startling discoveries in the past couple of years, say? To me, the most exciting bit is that most of what you think and do and act and believe 
is all running under the hood of conscious awareness, meaning the conscious part of you, the part that flickers to life when you wake up in the morning, that's the smallest bit of what's happening in your brain. And what you have underneath the hood of conscious awareness is the most complicated thing we've ever found in the universe. And it has struck me as increasingly interesting, the deeper I've reached my arms down into this over the years, how little we actually have conscious access to. And in some sense, we just end up having to trust our brains and our bodies to do the right thing. I mean, obviously, we all know this in terms of uh, heartbeat and breathing and blinking and digestion and all these sorts of things you don't have to think about, and your brain just does the right thing. But it goes a lot farther than that. It's recognizing a friend's face. It's falling in love. It's deciding what you're going to do with your career. All of these things are sort of like heartbeat and digestion and breathing in the sense that you're not really the one driving the boat. David Eagleman, thank you so much for allowing your brain to speak with us today. It was my pleasure. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Baylor College of Medicine, where he directs the Laboratory for Perception and Action. He's the author of Incognito, The Secret Life of the Brain. Okay, for those of you who want physical exploration, you know, those of you who really want to get your feet wet... There's always the ocean. The great uncharted region of our planet. You know the numbers. The ocean covers more than 70% of Earth. 90% of ocean floor is unmapped and unexplored. We have better maps of, say it, Seth. The red planet, the fourth rock from the sun, our rusty, dusty pal, Mars. Than we do of our own oceans. That's why ocean science is taking a dive. To the deepest parts of the sea. A number of expeditions are preparing to launch a new kind of space race to reach and map parts of the ocean floor that are many times deeper than any conventional submarine has ever gone. In 1960, divers used the U.S. Navy sub Trieste to go to Challenger Deep, the southern end of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. No one has been there in the 50 years since. But Liz Taylor, the president of Deep Ocean Exploration and Research, hopes to change that by building the next generation of submarines. The company was started by renowned oceanographer Sylvia Earle. The new subs, Deep Search and Ocean Explorer, draw on new materials, although since we've already been to Challenger Deep, I asked Liz, why not just use what we use then, steel? Well, we absolutely can still use steel. Um, <laughs> I mean, steel is a, a great material, but it is heavy. We can also look at uh, titanium, aluminum, and what we're really looking at now is, of course, glass. Ancient material, but just so, so strong, so light. And really, it's about trying to find new materials that will allow you to open up the window of different ships that you can use. Some of the challenge that is running through industry right now is to get to the bottom of the ocean. It's been characterized as a race. There are a number of different groups. They're all building subs, and they want to go down deep, deep, deep. Would you describe this as, as a race to plant that flag at the bottom of the ocean or plant another <laughs> flag at the bottom of the ocean? Well, it really would just be planting another flag. I mean, if, if there is a race, it's the race to be the third man. We just don't see the point in it being any sort of a race. Really, what it is, it's a race against time as to being able to figure out what the heck we're doing to the ocean, what is our impact on the ocean, how is climate change impacting it. We take so much out. We've got huge fisheries extraction, uh, rare earth minerals now being discussed for suctioning up off the ocean floor. And yet, our knowledge about the deep ocean is just a big black hole. You know, we just don't have very much knowledge at all. Only about Two to five percent of the ocean has been really explored, and most of that is within scuba depth, which is the first hundred meters or so. And then beyond that, we have 
a few submersibles that can get to a thousand meters. So there's just this void of tools that are available to scientists to go out and just do fundamental exploration. And exploration is the word here. The idea is that if, you, if we have these submersibles, we can actually go to parts of the ocean that no one has been to. That's right. And the, the nice thing about these submersibles that, that we're designing here, the, the deep search submersible and the ocean explorer submersible, is that it fundamentally gives the scientists the luxury of time. If you're a scientific diver, you know, you're going down for an hour if you're at 50 feet, less if you're going deeper, and you're kind of buzzing around an area checking things out. But if you have a submersible, you can go down, and I don't care if it's you know, 50 feet or 5,000 meters or however deep it is, you can just sit there and observe. And that's such a gift. What's the deepest you've gone down? You've done some diving yourself. We've, we've done some dives in the Bahamas down to you know, a few thousand feet, and it's, just, it's amazing. And no, no two dives are ever the same. So you'll see things that are, have their own sort of light-emitting structures. You'll see animals that have very large feathery attachments to themselves so that they're, they're able to capture very discrete particles out of the water column. And just the, the number of animals that are drifters and floaters, all the jelly creatures. You know, we really don't think about the ocean as a three-dimensional environment that it is. Now, it sounds like you're not claustrophobic. I actually am. So this makes me brave for what I'm about to do, although I'm not going to encase myself in what we have before us. Uh, but we have a mock-up of what would be the sphere for deep search, the, mm -hmm. the new vessel. Can you explain what's in front of us here? This is just a, an acrylic model, and we use this for testing and evaluating human factors. So we look at things like hatch fit, the maximum size hatch, what's the most comfortable but smallest hatch size we can use. This one is acrylic. So acrylic, it's easy to work with. It's inexpensive for all of our testing and modeling functions, but it is the full size uh, interior diameter of what we will use for the deep search submersible and for the ocean explorer submersible. So people, people go in there? Yes, people get inside of this one, two to three people. <laughs> okay, um, all right, so I'll try it. So what it is is this great big sphere, there's a hole at the bottom, I have to kind of crawl under. A hole, hole in the bottom and a hole in the top. Again, you know, so we're looking at, at that strategy. Is it easier for people to come in from the top and climb down? Is it easier for people to get in from the bottom and climb up? And what I'm thinking about right now is oxygen and it looks like there's plenty of it in there. Okay, oh, yeah. so, so I'll go in. I'm going under this great big dome, and there's a hole. Now I'm going to climb up. <laughs> I feel like some kind of um, creature, alien creature on display. So I'm reaching out, I'm touching the sides of this. It's not glass, it's, it's this acrylic, it's clear, and as you can hear, it's a great big bubble. Okay, I'm going to come out. All right. Well, that is like being in another world. So the idea is that the divers, the people that would be going down, would be sitting in there looking out into the ocean. Right, and they have virtually a 360 degree view, which is again the beauty of really making the effort to come up with ways to use glass. Okay, now you said glass and, and this is acrylic, so this is, this is a mock-up, but you, you plan to actually use glass. Doesn't glass crack when you go down deep in the ocean? Well, glass cracks, you know, steel implodes on itself, Titanium can do the same thing. It's really about how you handle it and manage it. I mean, glass is unbelievably strong. I mean, if you look at all the different engineering models, glass turns out to be the lightest, strongest material for full ocean depth. What is the pressure down there? It's a very ugly 16,000 pounds per square inch. So it's, it's brutal. It's, it, will, it will kill you, no doubt. You have some glass here. Oh, we yeah, should we look at it. This is a, a, some glass that you might be using. So I was in the acrylic mock-up, but this actually is glass. Yes, it is. You can hear it. I'll tink it with my ring. <laughs> it's fragile. 
but strong. And this is a, a sphere that's actually made in Germany. We have a testing chamber where we've been playing around with different kinds of materials, testing them to fullish in depth, and see how we can keep the glass, which is very good in compression, how we can keep the glass from, it, from experiencing any tension. It's, it's just like people, you don't want to be in tension. <laughs> what are those guys doing over there, by the way, the noise that we hear? Oh, they are machining some parts for uh, manipulator arms. Will this submarine have robotic arms? It'll have robotic arms on it so it can pick up samples and do other kinds of underwater work. So it looks like, it looks like you have a visitor. Yes, we've got uh, Sylvia Earle, also my mother, showing up to visit us today. Sylvia Earle is your mom? She is. It's not a, a widely known fact, but I mean, she started the company since 1992. And since that time, she went to become explorer in residence at National Geographic and started her own foundation, the, the Sea Alliance. But my husband and I uh, acquired the company from her, and we've kind of grown it up. We're luring you in over here. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Earl. My name is Molly Bentley. Hi. I'm a reporter. Nice to meet you. Yes. In fact, we have met in the past. I thought uh, you were familiar. Now, I know you have a lot to do, but I just want to ask you, what's being built is the next generation of submarine. And why is that exciting for you to see what is being built here and the possibilities that it opens up? Well, it'll be a dream come true. Long-time dream. It's really baffling why we have so neglected the ocean. We've, we've neglected the ocean, and it's costing us dearly. Without the ocean or without a healthy ocean, everything we care about is at risk. Now we know that. We didn't know it when I was a kid. But the idea that there's the capacity to have a system that literally is so easy to drive, even a scientist can do it. Even a scientist can learn how to be a pilot. And you said scientists, and often when people think about going into the ocean, they think of exploration, and that there's a division between the two. Either you're an explorer or you're a scientist, but it sounds like the two are coming together. Oh, every scientist I know is an explorer. Every scientist, every explorer basically is a little kid who <laughs> hasn't ever quite grown up. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for uh, hearing the story. It does make a difference. We've been talking about the materials, and it's important to have these lightweight materials. And, and also, this is a flexible craft, meaning it doesn't just go down and come up. Right. What is it that this can do? So the traditional method for deep water submersible is to be heavy at the surface, get down to working depth, drop some weight, and then kind of work at that depth, drop some more weight, and come back to the surface. A vehicle such as the deep search craft instead has a variable pitch mass, so it can actually change its orientation. It can go nose up, nose down, and it doesn't leave any trash behind in the way of uh, weights or plates or shot or anything like that. So it's a very clean vehicle. I won't say it's green, I'll say it's blue. Um, <laughs> And it also has a variable buoyancy system, so we can control its attitude in the water column. You can, can stop anywhere along the way that you want and be able to conduct research. I mean, who knows? There's so much we haven't seen in the ocean. You never know if that giant squid or that big school of fish is going to really catch your attention along the way. And it would, be, it would kind of suck to have to just sort of keep going past it and not be able to stop and really focus and film and sample and do all the work that a scientist or an explorer would want to do along the way. Liz, thank you very much for talking with us. Oh, you're very welcome. And pass another thanks on to your mom as well. I surely will. I'll probably meet her underwater next time. <laughs> Liz Taylor is the president of Deep Ocean Exploration and Research in Alameda, California. Well, Molly, from the ocean to space to our brains. To the space in our brains. 
<laughs> there's a lot of space in there. There's a lot left to be explored. So I don't feel that I've missed my chance to boldly go somewhere. Yes, and I wonder what will be left at another hundred years from now. Whoever the explorers are then, I hope they have the kind of brave and intrepid support that we have. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Keith Rosendahl, and volunteer Jay Weiler. Also support from the I-beams in our office, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air transmitted radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. You've been listening to Into the Unknown.